You are listening to Haftorah, the Shir series where we explore the connections between the Parsha Shavua and its corresponding Haftorah. And here at the database with Rabbi Yeshua Eisenberg, this week's Parsha is Parsha's Korach, and the Haftorah comes to us from Sefer Shmuel Aleph. Not the first time that we are opening up Sefer Shmuel Aleph for a Haftorah. We saw it, for example, for Parsha Zachor, where we read from Shmuel Aleph Perak Tesvav, the story of Shol and Agag. More recently, we saw Shmuel Aleph as a Haftorah for the unique scenario of Machar Chodesh, and that came from the story of David HaMelech and Yehonah's son just before Rosh Chodesh. And one point that we have not yet made this series, at least, is that Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Beis are really all one Sefer Shmuel. It was a later Christian convention to separate them into Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Beis, or Samuel 1 and 2, or A and B. Uh, but for purposes of organization, we're going to um, refer to our um, our featured Haftarah as being from Shmuel Aleph, though we've had Shmuel Beis as well featured in Haftarahs. For example, for the Shvi'i Shal Pesach, we had Shiras David HaMelech from Shmuel Beis, and um, there have been other times as well. But in the meantime, we'll focus on the Haftarah from Shmuel Aleph that comes to us from Perak Yud Aleph and Yud Beis, so 11 and 12. It starts with Perak Yud Aleph, Pasuk Yud Aleph, 11, 14, goes all the way till Perak Yud Beis, Pasuk Chaf Beis, 12, 22. And I dedicate this shir, Luli Nishmas, Imi Marasi, Chai Rachel, Bas David Tzvi, Harini Kaparas, Meshkava, Her Nisham, Shad Havin Aliyah. And let's talk about our Parsha and its Haftarah. So at least for the Parsha, the main attraction of Parsha's Korach is obviously the tragic story of Korach's rebellion, in which he recruited 250 Nesiei Eida, esteemed leaders, Rabbonim, Tamidei Chachamim, Tzadikim of, of Klai Yisrael, um, and he was able to cleverly draw them to his side, and all of them together publicly challenged Moshe Rabbeinu's leadership, and of course Aaron HaKohen's Kahuna, his priesthood, now, for such an emotionally stirring rebellion story, we would think that it would be complemented by an equally exciting rebellion story from Navi in Haftarah. So, which one is it going to be? Which rebellion story is featured in our Haftarah? Could it be the story from Shmuel Beis, when Shimei ben Gera publicly challenges and rebels against David HaMelech? Maybe a good choice would be the story from Malachim Aleph, when Adonio attempts to usurp the throne from Shlomo HaMelech, okay, he'll say, well, we had a, that Haftarah featured already. Okay, fine. So maybe we can go with the story, the later story in Malachim Aleph, when Yeravim rebels against Rechavim and the entire Davidic dynasty causing a schism in Klal Yisrael. And as it happens, not only does the Haftarah feature none of these rebellion stories, but it does not really seem to feature any real rebellion stories at all. Instead, the Haftarah is taken from the story of Shmuel Aleph, when Shmuel Hanavi admonishes the Bnei Israel for demanding that he appoint a king over them, and he warns them about the imminent consequences of such a request. Now the question is, why the Haftarah takes this route? Why exactly do we want to hear about the time that Klai Israel asked for a Melech? If anything, we would think maybe to feature this Haftarah for Parshas Shoftim, when the Torah delineates the halachos, the rules for ordaining a king in Klal Yisrael. So what in the world is this Haftarah doing here? What does it have to do with anything in Parshish Karach? 
And from the outset, there are some surface connections between Korach and its Haftarah from Shmuel. For example, the focus on leadership roles. Korach's rebellion was all about the appointees to leadership and his problems with them. And the conversation about kingship obviously pertains to leadership. Moreover, Shmuel was a direct descendant of Korach, and as Rashi points out in our parsha, um, in the name of the Medrash, quotes the Tanchuma, that it was due to Korach foreseeing that Shmuel would come from him, that Korach believed that he was strong enough to challenge Moshe and Aaron, at least in his spiritual abilities and spiritual worth, because we find that Pasuk that we say in uh, Kabbalah Shabbos, Right, that Moshe and Aaron in their in, in his priesthood and Shmuel yeah is equated to them. So if Shmuel is equated to them and he's a descendant of Korach, so maybe Korach has an ability to challenge Moshe and Aaron. But of course it doesn't really tell us why this particular Haftarah is chosen. So of course these connections stand only at the surface. So then the question for us then is how the story of Bnei Israel's request for a king fundamentally connects at all to the story of Korach's rebellion. Now, the first step to answering our question is to get a better understanding of our Haftarah. So what exactly led to the Bnei Israel's request to have a king in the first place? Was this an appropriate request even in theory? And what exactly was it that caused Shmuel Hanavi to admonish Kalal Yisrael at the time. So the Bnei Yisrael's request for a king is recorded earlier in the Navi when the final shoftim, or judges, namely Shmuel's sons, Yoel and Aviah, were reigning when they were in charge. The problem was that they were corrupted by their power, and the people rightfully complained that their corruption was inappropriate. In the same breath, though, they requested that Shmuel appoint a melech, a king, to rule over them like all of the nations. This emphasis on being like the nations of the world is what has Chazal upset. Because on the contrary, the Bnei Israel should not aspire to be like the nations of the world. As true and as fair, perhaps, as a complaint that, 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 may be, that there may be, there may be something else that's fundamentally wrong with this particular request for a king. And before we get to what's wrong with their request, we have to first ask, is the appointment of a king in Israel intrinsically a good thing, or is it a bad thing? Now, the Torah itself acknowledges that there's a place for an Israelite king, and in fact, one of the mitzvot incumbent upon the Bnei Israel's settling in Eretz Israel is to appoint a king, as we cited earlier from Parsha Shoftim. Moreover, the Navi in Shoftim, in Sefer Shoftim, itself seems to suggest that a king was necessary, because, as the Navi states on more than one occasion, In those days, says the Navi, there was no king in Israel, and a man would do what was straight in his own eyes. Meaning, it seems that Klaistra really needed a king. And on the other hand, when we actually get to the Book of Kings, of Sefer Malachim, Right, so there's Malachim Aleph and Malachim Beis, but as we mentioned earlier, they're really, just like Shmuel, there's only one Sefer Shmuel, there's really only one Sefer Malachim. But in Sefer Malachim, the Navi describes some of the most corrupt individuals of the Bnei Israel's history who sat on the throne and not only incorporated all sorts of Avodazar into the Jewish kingdom, but murdered innocent people by the masses. So again, Melech, good idea, bad idea? 
It seems like now we're stuck. Because while Sefer Shoftim seems to suggest that appointing a king would be a good idea, a necessary idea, Malachim seems to suggest that appointing a king, at least on many occasions, in many contexts, was a very bad idea. So how do we feel standing in Sefer Shmuel, right in between Shoftim and Malachim, when the first king is about to be crowned? Should we feel good or bad about that? Is it appropriate or inappropriate? And the answer to this question might be that, in fact, it truly depends on the context and situation and circumstances. And yes, the reason for having a melech. Yes, the Torah commands us to appoint a king. And yes, Sefer Shoftim testifies that a king may have been necessary because otherwise, indeed, a man would do what's straight in his own eyes. And sometimes, and in fact, many times, what's straight in man's own eyes is not straight and correct in the eyes of Hashem. However, that is only true if the king himself, of course, is truly an upstanding and righteous individual who himself will not just do what is straight in his own eyes. right? If he is an ambassador of a Kaddish Baruch Hu and his Torah, then surely a king can be an ideal. Whoever the leader is, he has to be concerned about what is right in Hashem's eyes, and that is why the Torah commands that the king of Israel must write for himself a second safer Torah to keep with him at all times. So a king in, in, in Israeli office could be a success, but of course it can also be an utter failure if none of those other requirements are met. Thus, from the Torah's concept of a king, from the standpoint of what looked like a failing era of Shoftim, a king sounded like a great idea. And on the other hand, many would argue that Sefer Malachim produced an even worse mess than that which existed during the era of the Shoftim. And looking at Malachim, from a bird's eye view, it seems that having a king was an all-around terrible idea. Now, something to think about on the side is that we daven all the time to have the return of Melech HaMashiach, the Davidic dynasty. So, again, it sounds like there's an ideal sort of king that we're hoping for, a Melech that's going to lead us on the path of, of Ratzon Hashem and engaging in Torah Hashem, Asek B'Torah, doing the mitzvot and avodah Hashem. But again, for some reason, Shmuel Hanavi is upset at Klai Yisrael's request. And for some reason, Malachim shows us all sorts of examples of kings gone wrong. So again, let's return to Sefer Shmuel. In Shmuel, the Bnei Yisrael are rebuked for requesting a king. And as we explained, the Bnei Israel claimed that they wanted a king to be like the nations. In other words, they wanted to change the current system. Whether or not they were correct to overthrow Shmuel's sons seems obvious. Unfortunately, Shmuel's sons were corrupt individuals. And if that was their only problem, the impropriety of the current leaders, that would have been fine. But there is a simple fix to that which has nothing to do with changing the system. Right? Just change the leaders. They could have just appointed new Shoftim. Right? Did, well, no, no one came up with that idea? They, there had to be some really upstanding Shoftim before Yoel and Avia. So why did the people ask for a king? Why did they want to change things up? Was it because they realized that the Torah ideal for a king was ready to be met? Apparently not, and instead of merely blaming the guilty individuals, it seems that they chose to blame the game. They blamed the system. Sometimes, 
Right, and often we hear it in the reverse. We say, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. But here, it's the exact opposite. They, yes, pointed at the players, but then they kind of zoomed out and said, hey, but you know what, there's a bigger problem. The system is broken, right? And that is why in our Haftarah, Hashem informs Shmuel not to be mistaken, that the Bnei Yisrael were not merely rejecting Shmuel's family, but that they were ultimately rejecting him. Excuse me, that's not actually in the Haftarah, but that's earlier in Sefer Shmuel. But when uh, when Shmuel is is offended by Klai Yisrael's rejection of his family, of his sons, so this is what Hashem tells him, that, no, they're not really rejecting you per se or your family. They're actually rejecting my system of Shoftim. They're rejecting me. They have a problem with me. Because if they truly cared about Hashem's will, and here's the point, they would not have asked for a king just because or to be like the nations. Right? That, that That's really, you know, I don't know if I would call it the nail in the coffin, but that, that is the giveaway, that is the tell-all sign that this is, in a certain sense, a rebellion against Hashem, this request for a king. And the proof to this lack of purity finds itself in Sefer Malachim, the book of kings itself, when some of the most wicked individuals who did not care about what was correct in Hashem's eyes ended up on the throne. Now, what does any of this have to do with Karak's rebellion? So if we truly understand the root of Karak's rebellion, it actually has everything to do with it. Right? We were looking and hoping for an exciting rebellion story where someone, you know, um, is up in arms and stands up against a, um, a current prominent leader, protests and riots. But maybe that's really not what Karach is about. Maybe Karach is about something more subtle and something even more scary. Right? If you think about what Karach's real rebellion was about, more than a rebellion, Karach's campaign to the public eye was presented as a most righteous attempt to correct what he claimed was a broken system. And he argued, for the entire congregation is holy. And that Moshe and Aaron were unlawfully amassing power for themselves, putting themselves at the top, like perhaps a couple of corrupt judges. Korach's campaign was arguing for this spiritual sort of socialism, which saw everyone being eligible for every spiritual right and entitlement. Of course, that's not what Korach really wanted, right? But Korach targeted both Moshe's leadership and Aaron's priesthood, that which made them higher, head and shoulders above everyone else. Now the question is, what really triggered Korach, and what, um, what, what was behind Korach's campaign, right? Besides for what you see in the platform, what you see in the brochures, what was Korach really in it for? Because Rashi, again, citing the Medrash Tanchuma, points out that Korach was merely upset that his family was passed over, so that he would not be crowned as the Nasi, the prince of his tribe of Sheva Levi. In other words, he didn't originally care to usurp Moshe and Aaron's roles. And even so, certainly if Korach had been himself granted the role as a leader and a Kohen Gadol, he would not be challenging the system. Had Korach been granted the personal covet he truly desired, then he would not have created this convoluted campaign platform about changing the system so that everyone could theoretically be the Kohen Gadol. That's obviously not what he wanted. If anything, Korach wanted that he should be the Kohen Gadol. Of course, that's the quiet part that he's not willing to say out loud. So what did Korach do 
when he had trouble and problems with seemingly just players in the game, he attacked the game itself. He attacked the system and its leaders. And in so doing, he attacked Hashem's system, Hashem's leaders, Hashem's Torah, Hashem himself. This concept of challenging the system to cover up ulterior desires pervades as Parshish Karach continues. For example, after Karach descends into the earth and his assembly is wiped out by a heaven-sent fire, the Bnei Israel accuse Moshe and Aaron of murder, saying, Hamisem es am Hashem, you have killed the people of Hashem. Again, pointing the blame away from its true source, not at Korach and the 250 Nisiyah who went against Hashem. But they point at Moshe and Aaron. And then as a response, Hashem hits the nation with a plague. And who would stop the plague but Aaron or Cohen as he, as he offered the Ketoras upon the Mizbeach? Now why and how did the Ketoras stop the plague and what's the significance of this particular story in our parsha? So Rashi, to... Pasuk Yedzayin, Pasuk Yud Gimel, cites a combination of the Mechilta and Meshalach um, and the Gemara and Brachos, explaining that the people denounced the Keturahs, declaring it a Sam Hamaves, or a deathly poison, a poisonous drug, considering the fact that Aaron's own two sons, Nadav and Aviyu, died offering that incense before Hashem, and most recently, 250 Nisiyah of Korach's assembly were killed in the very same way. Thus, by saving the nation with the Keturahs, Aaron demonstrated that the Keturahs was in fact not a Samhamaves. It was not intrinsically a poisonous drug, but it was an Otser Magefa, a plague stopper. And if only the people were being honest with themselves and really tried to understand why anyone was dying at all, they would never have pointed the finger at the system. In this case, it was the Keturahs that they blamed. So they're finding all the wrong sources to point at, whether it's Moshen, Aaron, or the Ketores. And only verses later, the people mourn themselves. They say, Hein gavanu avadnu, kulanu avadnu, all of us are dying, we're perishing. Kala kareva kareva la mishkan Hashem yamas. Anyone who tries to approach the mishkan of Hashem is going to die. Hayim tamnu l'gvo, is there an end to our, our expiration? Yet again, they blame the system, and now they're pointing at the center of their religious service, the very mishkan itself. And you know what Hashem answers? There's an easy fix. Vizar lo yikrav aleihem. The lo yeh od ketzef al Yisrael. Just make sure that a czar does not approach the Mishkan. And then there's going to be no more wrath against the Bnei Yisrael. That's it. You're going to say, oh, now we, we, oh, shul is a problem. And Torah learning is a problem. How many things are you going to point at? Judaism, Yiddishkeit is the problem. Parshas Korach and Tzavtar teach us that it's not about the system. The system will not anyone who properly abides by it. It was not designed for any one individual's failure. Not the Keturahs, not the Mishkan, not the leadership, not Moshe and Aaron, not the Torah. Such a form of anti-establishment in the world of Torah and its Mesorah of leaders is not merely a rejection and rebellion against human leaders, but it in fact is a rejection and rebellion against Hashem himself. The Bnei Israel, like Korach, not only in our Sidra, but in our Haftarah, wrongly challenged the system instead of taking real responsibility for the impropriety that existed. And unfortunately, we live in a society that naturally tries to diffuse responsibility. It's interesting. It seems that a long time ago, you know, there was a concept of the fundamental attribution error where people would blame other people for things and instead of being down the Kafskos. 
And I feel like in our generation, um, similar to in, in what we find in Parshas Korach, um, we find a little bit more of the opposite, where instead of blaming actual people who are making bad decisions, we point back at the system. Right? It's much easier to blame a nameless society or a system for the failures that our eyes behold, the failures of humans, mistakes that people make. Sometimes it comes from a place of altruistic benefit of the doubt, maybe, that Don Lekavskos, but again, quite often it's coming from a place of laziness or perhaps hidden selfishness, as we see from Korach. Again, usually they say not to hate the player, but to hate the game. But again, I feel like often in life, as in our Haftarah, the exact opposite is true. The game is not always responsible for individual failures. It's often the player's faults. And this is true, I would say, throughout all areas of life. There is unfortunately such a thing as corrupt leaders. There is such a thing as a failing society. But often enough, it's not the system that needs the fixing. It's the individual people who need the fixing. They who need to do the soul-searching. The leaders have to be upstanding and responsible people. Each individual member of the group, of the collective, also has to work on himself and be a responsible member of society. Everyone has to abide by the system. And if Hashem backs the system, then we play the game by His rules. And we have to stop blaming the system. We have to stop hating the game and instead take personal responsibility for ourselves and our own actions, our own decisions. May we all be zochet to be intellectually honest, to abide by Hashem's system and fulfill our responsibilities in that system. And Hashem should assure that each of us are taken care of and personally crown that Melech HaMashiach that we yearn for every single day, the Meher B'Amenu. Have an absolutely wonderful Shabbos. And as always, if you enjoyed this share and others like it on the podcast and you want to partner up with us with the sponsorship, or if you have questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, or you want to join the database podcast WhatsApp group where you'll find links that are able to share or share them that I repost due to their relevance, then all you have to do is reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data then base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. Until next time, once again, have an absolutely wonderful Shabbos, and thank you for joining us here at The Database.